The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box, and these are your headlines. Too close to call, Turkey's presidential election appears to head to a runoff as neither candidate secures an outright win, but President Erdogan remains confident. We strongly believe that we will continue to serve our nation for the next five years. The debt ceiling showdown intensifies this week as U.S. congressional leaders buckle down for budget negotiations in order to avoid a default with President Biden confident a deal is still possible. I really think there's a desire on their part as well as ours to reach agreement. I think we'll be able to do it. G7 leaders targeting Russian energy and trade as they plan tighter sanctions in a bid to hamper Moscow's war effort in Ukraine. Plus, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky makes flying visits to European capitals in a bid to shore up further military aid as the counteroffensive against Russia gathers pace. Now is the time for us to determine the end of this war this year. This year we can make the aggressor's defeat irreversible. Elsewhere, revenues at AXA rise 1%, almost 32 billion euros in the first quarter. But assets under management fall 7% due to unfavourable market effects. We'll be speaking to the CFO at 7.45 CET in the first on CNBC. So let's kick off the programme this morning by focusing on the Turkish election. Turkey looks set to face a runoff vote in two weeks after incumbent President Erdogan failed to gain more than 50% at the ballot box. Erdogan and his rival Kemal Kilish Duralu have both claimed to be in the lead and warned against leaping to conclusions from the preliminary vote. Turkey's Supreme Election Council says Erdogan has just under half the votes counted with his rival on 44.8%. Well, Erdogan struck a confident tone to supporters as the votes came in. If our nation has made its choice in favour of the second round of the election, then that is also welcome. We believe that we will finish this round with over 50% of the vote. The opposition candidate hit out at President Erdogan over what he called slander and insults. A fascinating situation uh, enveloping um, markets at the moment because, yeah. of course, we've got what we're going to uh, with the uh, the Thai news a little bit later on. But uh, firstly, Turkey. Turkey, I've always thought, and my visits there, is just the most fascinating place on the planet. And I think historically it is juxtaposed. And if you just have to look at it and where all the countries it is attached to, and you think, my goodness me, is there any more important country geopolitically are on the planet as well. But obviously this is also about where it goes in terms of uh, uh, where it becomes more Western, less Western, more clerical, less secular, more secular, less clerical as well. So you've got so many counter trends going on here as well and, and factors as well. And Erdogan's had 20 years at this. Now you translate it to the market side of things as well. Uh, and I don't know if you've got a, a chart team of the uh, lira, Turkish lira over a long term period. But quite frankly, the economic mismanagement has been legendary at this country as well. And in such an important country as well, to see the performance of the lira on the back of what has been called, I mean, you know, 
if ever there was a chart that spoke volumes, that is it, isn't it? 354% decline versus the greenback over the last five years, which is a stunning indictment of the mismanagement of what it could be one of the most extraordinary economies on the planet. The, the, the challenge going forward, I mean, there, there was widely, I think, a forecast that we would see the lira rally on the back of the election outcome, regardless of which way it went, because it was perceived at least to uh, settle the question of, of who is in charge of Turkey going forward. But we know um, one of the challenges alongside that currency is the fact that the country runs large deficits at the moment. There is a funding issue. People are concerned about the access to foreign capital to support that current deficit situation. And of course, as long as the uh, government continues to give direction to the central bank about how it should be running monetary policy, that scares a lot of investors. And we've seen quite significant outflow from the Turkish equity market in the run-up to this election, as I think people have just hunkered down and found a place of safety to park until they actually know what the outcome is. Can I just rewind uh, many years back, if you think about how Turkey was one of the main players in the EM basket of assets, and that, that all just changed on a dime. The more we went down this pathway of unorthodox monetary policy with Erdogan himself pushing back against high interest rates, we saw just how that undermined confidence in the international community and parking assets in uh, that country. On top of it, also the unwinding of the strength of institutions, the pushback against journalists, against media. And and this is why it's such a pivotal change at this point. If we are talking about leadership change, will we actually see that genuine orbit back to the West and the, re, the re, um, rest, restoration of some of those institutions? It is a huge moment, potentially, the way we think about the emerging market basket of, um, of currencies and of stocks. And does Turkey find its way back if there is leadership change? If there isn't, you know, is this just a, a false moment, a false dawn? And what does it mean for the future? All of the above. I mean, I just think you look at this, and again, I'm just not, I don't think I can overestimate, overstate the point. You look at the control of the region it has, uh, the access to the Black Sea, again, makes it absolutely pivotal. It, it, its position with the grain deals, again, makes it absolutely pivotal. Its position with European uh, immigration, because all those um, Syrians and North Africans who make their way, whatever it is, or Middle Eastern uh, migrants who are fleeing conflict in the Middle East, especially, who come via Turkey uh, to Southern Europe, which creates all kinds of problems for Italy and for Greece and for other Southern European nations. You look at the NATO side of it, when you mention that, I mean, it's just, how can you have a country which is a stalwart NATO member that wants, wanted to buy F-35s, that is buying, I think they're called S-400 Soviet air defence systems. You just can't have a Soviet air defence system be in NATO and get F-35s at the same time as well. So it's just the most important and confusing geopolitical situation. I reckon, look, we've got Mike Harris later on, but I think it tops any other political situation well, for its complexity. I mean, I think as we've made, there are a lot of touch points geopolitically here for the outcome of this election. Let's get to Dan, who is in uh, Istanbul for us uh, reporting on this story. Dan, give us a little bit of uh, local colour from there. Just exactly uh, what is the mood like as we watch the election count unfold? 
Well, Jeff, Karen, Steve, just to add to the conversation here, you really do get a sense that the economy was front and centre in this vote. Uh, I was walking around the bazaars and public squares in Istanbul yesterday, and of course, you really also get the sense that everyday Turks are really feeling the pressure of not just the collapse in the lira, but also skyrocketing inflation, hitting more than 80% last year. Yes, it has cooled down to around 50% in the last read in April, but clearly a cost of living crisis weighing heavily on the minds of the 55 million voters who turned out in force on Sunday to make their voice heard. What's also interesting, though, is that, as you know, neither candidate has been able to achieve the 50 percent of the vote required in order to claim victory here. That means that this election is likely to go to an unprecedented, never before seen second run presidential election as soon as the 28th of May, the results of which we probably won't know until the 1st of June. Of course, both sides coming out of their campaigns last night claiming victory. Uh, but of course, we will have to wait and see how the final numbers stack up and what that likely second presidential run entails before we understand who is going to be Turkey's next leader. Well, let's get more insights and some more analysis on the vote at hand. I'm very pleased to say that Soli Ozel joins me now. He's a senior lecturer at Kadar Has University here in Istanbul. And Soli, just walk us through what we've seen in the last few hours playing out here. The opinion polls had suggested that Erdogan was trailing. So what happened? Well, I think worldwide accurate polling appears to be an oxymoron. <laughs> and uh, Turkey had its share. Turkey had its share of that as well. You're absolutely right. Um, last minute polls indicated that the opposition leader, Mr. Kılıçdaroğlu, would just by a very small margin win um, the election for the presidential contest. That not only did this not happen, he didn't even come ahead if the final figures are correct, if they're not going to be changed because there will be appeals and stuff. So in that sense, it's a big disappointment for the opposition and for those who supported the opposition. That's for the moment, this is, in my judgment, the clearest thing that can be said as to why uh, we'll have to really analyze the voting pattern. And it is indeed interesting because, as you said, we do have or we've been living in a fairly delicate, to say, to be polite about it, economic situation. The standard of living of everyone, except for the maybe top 10 percent of Turks, has been declining. Uh, the inflation is very high by world standards. Uh, urban middle classes have been losing ground in terms of their living standards as well. And under those circumstances, the safe bet was that uh, a lot of constituencies that have previously supported Mr. Erdogan, a lot of them mainly because they were happy with the economic performance of the, of the government, were defecting. And uh, when, you look at, uh, when you look at the uh, parliamentary results as well, for AKP to have 35% and his partner to have 10%, so jointly 45%, is quite remarkable. It's, it is really quite remarkable. So how are we going to see the next two weeks play out and what is the most likely outcome of this unprecedented second presidential run? Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> obviously there's going to be very heavy campaigning. The opposition will try to keep the troops uh, energetic and hopefully restore their morale. 
And uh, the um, third candidate, Mr. Oan, who commended about, surprisingly, by the way, who commended 5.3%, I guess, uh, of the votes. Uh, and he started out very low, by the way. And he may have taken some of the uh, votes that of the, of, of the other independent candidate who resigned or who, who withdrew. Uh, whether or not he'll be able to tell his voters to go one in one direction or another is a big question. And if he can, that is, if they will listen to him, if that, if, if that wasn't just a protest vote, then the question is going to be who is he going to support. Yesterday he came up in a, in a rather enigmatic way. He has, he, he has said that the first four articles of the Constitution are inviolable. And so respect for that is very important for him, which would suggest that he would tilt towards the opposition. But then he is against the PKK and the Kurdish party supported the opposition, then is he for, for those in power. But then he also, he also was against the Hüdapar, a very fundamentalist uh, party that supported the Mr. Erdogan. So he has now placed all his chips on every square, if you will. And uh, his support is going to be valuable and he will have a lot of bargaining power, I think. Absolutely. And Sully, we'll be watching this, this vote really well, closely. I but we'll see you back here in a couple of weeks. Indeed, indeed no doubt you will. Uh, Sully, okay. we'll have to leave it there out of time, but sure. thank you so much sure. for joining me today. I appreciate it. That is Sully Ozelbe, senior lecturer at Qadar Haas University here in Istanbul. And guys, we'll be tracking the market reaction when the local cash trading begins in just a few hours' time. We've already seen the lira falling to a two-month low in post-election trade. It's back over to you. All right. Terrific, Dan. Thanks so much for that. We'll be back to you uh, a little bit later on in the program. And for more on the Turkish election coverage here on CNBC, check out the website. That is cnbc.com. Elsewhere, voters in Thailand have delivered a victory for the opposition with the Liberal Move Forward Party and the Populist Futai Party leading late on Sunday evening. 99% of ballots have been counted, delivering a decisive blow to the two military-aligned parties of the current government. Despite their sweeping victories, it remains uncertain, though, whether either opposition party will be able to form the next government. Right, let's get back to... I mean, look, I, I think these political events are stratospheric and very important in both regions that we've covered today. But let, let's be brutally honest about it. The market is looking at the debt ceiling as the absolutely pivotal event of... Um, of, of, the, of the moment. US President Joe Biden and congressional leaders will resume discussions over the debt ceiling. Biden told reporters he will meet uh, the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy this week. The US Congress is rushing to raise or suspend borrowing limits before a deadline and a potential default in early June. So look, that is one of the overriding factors of the market. It's not the only thing as well. And look, let, let, let's just paint a picture. Let's say that the debt ceiling issue gets solved, okay? Let's just say that that doesn't become a major factor for the market. What does it do to the market? Well, logically, you would say it's a sigh of relief, the market then rallies, yeah? I mean, that could well be your base case, bell curve, top distribution uh, scenario. But, but there are other things going on here. And I thought, did you look at the University of Michigan consumer sentiment on Friday? I think you did. You looked at the tail end last week. So look, it fell more than expected. And uh, long run, uh, the escalation of inflation expectations escalated uh, to uh, a, a long-term high. So people are thinking, right, we, we are less uh, optimistic and we have higher long-term 12-month 
uh, inflation expectations. That is not a good scenario because as all you geniuses in the economist world out there know, it's not only what real inflation is about, it's about expected inflation, especially uh, from the consumer at the moment. So that potentially is the worrisome scenario. This narrow path that we've talked about a lot, the narrow path uh, to some form of soft landing for the US economy. Is that going to happen? Absolutely. Don't, don't be fooled by this 0.03% of the Dow uh, on Friday. For the week, it was fascinating. The Dow lost 1.1%. Now, that's not a huge loss, considering it was down five out of five sessions. But what is also interesting is that NASDAQ rallied uh, 0.4% for the week. So there was a 1.5% difference between the Dow and the NASDAQ uh, for uh, the week as well. In fact, the NASDAQ, yeah, is up for three weeks in a row now, which I think is fascinating given all the weight of concerns about debt ceilings, about recessions and about inflation and about interest rate expectations as well. As well. So just tell you very briefly, we'll move on to treasuries. Why don't we do that as well? Uh, the uh, 10-year yield trading at 3.47 now uh, and uh, just a waffer thin away from the uh, two-year being around, uh, with a 4% handle as well. But in terms of the data this week, well, I will draw your attention to Tuesday's retail sales figures uh, and then later on the week, jobless figures, Philly Fed, and housing starts as well on Wednesday and Thursday. So really interesting data week, but I'd say the retail sales could be your most uh, interesting piece of data as well. Uh, Asian indices look thus. So by and large, positivity. Shanghai Composite down nine tenths of 1%. Uh, I have been poring over these Siemens Energy numbers, Jeffrey, and I think the sales look amazing. But they've got other problems out there, and margin is one of the key issues. Yeah, and isn't it? Every time we talk to uh, Christian Brook, we, we hear more about Siemens Gamesa and the turnaround that um, is meant to be underway there. But as you say, challenging. But we'll talk about this with the CFO. The company posting a, a net loss in the second quarter and warning of more pain to come. We will catch up with Maria Ferraro. That's a first on CNBC shortly. And for more on the fallout from Turkey's election and to find out what comes next, you can check out the Scorebox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Right, um, I'm not going to go through loads of Siemens uh, energy flashes because, look, the order backlog is fantastic, 102 billion euros. They've raised the sales outlook. Now expect revenue growth of 10 to 12% versus a 3 uh, to 7% previously. That all sounds fantastic, but Maria Ferraro, CFO of Siemens Energy, and it is the sales side, it's great, well played. But we're always being dragged down by the same factor. And you know, it. we spoke to Christian many times about it. How many times are your numbers and your margin outlook going to be blighted by Siemens Gamesa? Good morning, Maria. Good morning. I'm really pleased to be here. And thank you for setting it up perfectly. I mean, as always, there's a lot to talk about. And I think you're absolutely right. We're really pleased with the top line performance. I mean, to put into perspective, year to date, we have 25 billion plus of orders already in house, a backlog of over 102 billion. So clearly, our transformation journey that we took previously in parts of our business is clearly paying off. With respect to revenue, 
Yes, we've increased our guidance with six months behind us. We clearly see that this is now growing as expected. We expect that to taper off slightly in the next six months because, of course, um, looking at the prior year, that's when the post-pandemic boom started to happen. And with respect to profit, yes, we see that we're at the bottom end of the range. But, of course, we see that our journey is paying off step by step. Looking at Siemens Gamesa, they're clearly where we were three years ago. I mean, it took time for the rest of the business to get to where they are today. Um, and they're in the midst of it. And they've put together some actions and they're clearly looking at how to pivot into 24 and beyond. Maria, um, and thank you for that answer. You've addressed everything really. Uh, but but just can we go back one stage for our viewers who perhaps have looked at your company, looked at the amazing sales figures, but also want to know what is going wrong with um, Siemens Gamesa and what is being done to sort this out? Because I can't help thinking your share price would be somewhere completely different if it hadn't been for this blot on the landscape for the last couple of years. Look, the energy transition, we need the energy transition to take place and we need renewable energy. So clearly the market momentum, the positivity in that top line also translates to our wind business. Again, I think back three years ago, we were in a similar position for the rest of our business. It took time, hard work, perseverance. I think it wasn't so long ago that we had such, you know, things like supply chain bottlenecks, logistic costs, raw, raw material price increases. That continues to have impact on our long lead business like Siemens Gamesa. Again, they're in the middle of their transformation. We remain confident that they continue to identify the root causes and they're clearly making progress. And beyond 24, we see that stabilization occurring. We keep on talking about energy transition in Europe and just the changes that have been taking place on the back of the war in Ukraine, but overall EU energy goals themselves. As you take a look at the order book, how do you think it stands at this stage? Yeah, um, I really appreciate that question because our order book, I always say, is the foundation for our future. And of course, we want stability in all of the business conditions, including government uh, initiatives and programs to support us. But I can assure you, I'm very confident with our backlog. This clearly underpins our midterm targets and our targets that we've set for ourselves. So now it's up to all of us, including all of those programs and initiatives to support that growth. Because again, the energy transition is necessary. We all need to contribute. And we're clearly on our path. Maria, one of the problems in recent years has been inflation, and that's impacted your sector as well. The cost of various different components, the supply chain issues, getting some of those components where they need to be in factories as well. How does the supply chain look like, and what's the pricing component that you're seeing at this stage? Yeah, excellent question. I would say compared to last year, we see some stabilization. However, it remains at a high level. Again, um, you know, supply chain challenges in some of parts of our business like Siemens Gamesa do persist. Um, and again, I see this remaining at a high level, both on inflation and both on costs. However, this is something that we're tackling day by day. Uh, Maria, apologies for dragging you back to uh, Gamesa, but um, I note the CFO is leaving today from that business. Um, you, you clearly are getting to grips with the challenges within the business. How much longer are we going to see losses reported from Gamesa? Yeah, you're clearly right. Uh, yes, um, uh, the CFO of Siemens Gamesa is leaving. I mean, we delisted the business in, in February, as you know, February 14th. So the profile of that business has changed. We thank her for her dedication and we wish her well into the future. Again, looking at Siemens Gamesa, I can just repeat, they're in the middle of their transformation. 
They have things. Jochen and his team are really working tirelessly to address all of those topics. We clearly see that some of those areas are progressing well. The challenges persist. But beyond 24, we see that things will stabilize. We need to give them time, time that they deserve, as we had time in other parts of our business, to really show that the journey does pay off. I see, we see, and we have a proven track record. Let me ask you a slightly different question, a bit, a bit of a broader brush here. Um, we're spending a lot of time at the moment doing compare and contrast the approach uh, in the United States with IRA, V's, what's happening in Europe at the moment, and whether the Commission is getting its game face on to basically respond to IRA with some incentives for, for companies to get involved in the, um, uh, uh, the transition. Um, give us your thoughts on this. I mean, how much more interested are you in now doing business in the States, in working with uh, US-based operators to benefit from the incentives that IRA includes? Look, clearly at Siemens Energy, uh, with our broad portfolio, we welcome all of the incentive programs that the government is putting in place, whether it's IRA, IRA or the Green Initiatives Act. And all of this means that we need stabilization in the areas in which we're trying to grow. Looking at the IRA, yes, of course our business is, is going to benefit from that. Looking at electrification, the pace of electrification, excuse me, it's early. Um, of course, all of that comes together for our grid technologies business for example, when it looks to grid stabilization, grid expansion. And that's where the IRA is really taking effect on behalf of our customers. And we're happy to be present in the U.S. and to take advantage of that, of course. So let me ask you what that implies. Does that mean that uh, Europe is going to lose out to some extent here as we see European-based companies uh, moving operations or at least seeking more business in North America. Um, is this something that the Commission needs to wake up to and act much more quickly in response to? Speed is of the essence um, in all areas uh, because, of course, you know, the energy transition doesn't wait for one part of the world versus another. So I think, of course, everybody needs to be conscious of time. But again, I believe certainly from our company's perspective, we're global and will benefit from all of those programs. And I believe that the government has a pivotal role to play um, because, of course, without them, we can't have the boundary conditions that stabilize um, and ensure that such projects take place as quickly as possible. Again. The world really needs the energy transition to happen as soon as possible. Maria, real pleasure. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Maria Ferraro, the CFO of Siemens Energy. Let's take a look at some consolidation in the gold mining sector. This is a big deal. Australian gold miner Newcrest has said it will back a $17.8 billion takeover from US rival Newmont in a deal that would create the world's biggest gold miner. The Australian firm had initially rejected approaches from Newmont in February before opening its books in April. The offer is a 30% premium to Newcrest's share price in February before Newmont's initial offer became public. Uh, just by numbers, Newmont's uh, gold output will nearly double its nearest rival, Barrick Gold, and it uh, obviously uh, puts it past Freeport McMoran to um, become the biggest gold and copper producer. So, so that's um, a big play in the market. So we need to sell every single materials company on the planet now then, do we? Not that, because... Uh, 
there, there is, I say, is, 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 is my sarcasm, by the way, oh, um, this sarcasm, is we cycle. only ever <laughs> see materials, you know this better than anyone on this planet, and certainly around this desk, BHP Billiton, the Anglos, all the, all the massive, the, Rio. the Rios deals, all the massive deals in the material sector only ever seem to happen right at the tippity top of the market. And of course, gold has been a stalwart performer, still above uh, $2,000 a troy ounce as well. Um, I'll just make sure that in my passive held funds that there's no materials anywhere, yeah? Is that what we do? It's a good point. I mean, we have seen a very strong cycle for gold. No one touched it for years and then suddenly it was back in every fund manager's portfolio. So, you know, perhaps you're right. And, you know, why is Newcrest willing to sell at this stage? The, uh, I mean, of course, uh, the, the real question is why. And I think that we will only find out in the fullness of time because, I mean, clearly precious metals have been doing a whole lot better yes, than are. industrial metals. We know that. And the industrial metals would appear to suggest that we are heading into rocky territory as far as the global economy is concerned. But is gold up enough to match inflation? Is gold still an inflation hedge? Is gold moving because everybody thought the dollar was going down? Is the dollar actually going up at this point? And does that mean gold is going down? I mean, there are so many fascinating questions as to why gold may have peaked at this point and whether there are legs to any further precious metals rally if the dollar is firming. You didn't even mention crypto in that space because as we were talking about alternatives in recent years, crypto obviously had found its place in the market, but given all the events that have transpired around the plumbing over at the crypto world, I think Bitcoin as a substitute for gold has lost plumbing some of its luster. Maybe one or two questions about... <laughs> I wouldn't would, would just, uh, just say the plumbing, Karen. I've got to be honest. I think there's one or two issues about the fact that right? uh, money launderers, drug dealers, arms dealers, and most of the... Uh, large amount of criminals still tend to uh, like the fact that there's not much regulation well, in this. And to the infrastructure. A lot of the infrastructure has yeah. gone belly up in recent times, so just yeah. getting money yeah. from A to B is yeah. a, a slight problem. Well, then they must welcome a vast amount more regulation then as well. Yeah. Yeah. Two acronyms, SEC, DOJ, yeah, <laughs> seem to be involved. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.